Many gay and bisexual men, dissatisfied with modern religions that struggle to accept and condone us, are hearing the call of the old gods, those gods and religions of antiquity that embraced us and recognized our inherent spirituality. While modern religions debate our worth as lovers, as priests, as sexual beings, the old gods and the old religions embraced us as sacred. We were their shamans, their priests, the intermediaries between the gods and mankind. Many of the gods themselves were homosexual, bisexual, or transgendered. These gods were untamed, vibrant, and sexual. Accept their call and their healing embrace. These are the Male Mysteries, and I'm your host, Male Mystery. A lot has happened since the last episode. In fact, it's been six months since my last podcast. My father passed away on January 7th, 2009. He'd been struggling for the past four years with a really aggressive strain of prostate cancer that eventually spread throughout his entire body. I've decided to dedicate this show to my dad, who a few months before he passed told me that he just wanted to let me know that he loved me regardless of me being gay and he'd hoped he'd never given me reason to believe otherwise, which he never did. I'm planning to make this episode a little shorter than most, mainly so I can get it out soon. I'll resume with regularly scheduled episodes in the near future. In this episode, I'll discuss the symbology of the serpent as a healer and review an event hosted by the Washington, D.C. radical fairies called the Feast of the Red Dragon. It's a benefit for charities dealing with bloodborne illnesses including cancer, HIV, and leukemia. When my dad went into the hospital for the final time, as I was driving back to see him, I heard this song on the radio. It reminded me that death isn't the end. During the many months he was sick, I read up on near-death experiences. If there's any truth to be had by the stories brought back by near-death survivors, it's that death isn't the end, and that we all live again, and again, and again. I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride Sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I was a sailor I was born upon the tide With the sea I did abide I sailed a schooner around the Horn of Mexico I went aloft to furl the mainsail in a blow And when the yards broke off they said that I got killed But I am living still I was a dam builder, a 
Across the river deep and wide Where steel and water did collide A place called Boulder on the wild Colorado I slipped and fell into the wet concrete below They buried me in that great tomb that knows no sound But I am still around I'll always be around, around, and around, and around, and around I fly a starship across the universe divide And when I reach the other side I'll find a place to rest my spirit if I can Perhaps I may become a highwayman again Or I may simply be a single drop of rain But I will remain I'll be back again and again and again I'd like to preface this episode that I have a terrible phobia of snakes, but at the same time an odd connection. When I was five years old, my dad watched a movie called The Wilderness Family, and it inspired him to pick up the entire family, move out of the city, into the wilderness, and to build a log cabin. I feel lucky that we ended up in the backwoods of Virginia and not Alaska where the movie was set. We lived for three years out in the sticks with no electricity and no running water, but lots of snakes. There were black snakes, green snakes, rattlesnakes, and copperheads. The first snake I ever saw was a green snake. I remember vividly that it was green with red or orange diamonds on its body. I don't know how reliable my memory is or whether such a snake really exists, but I was five years old, fresh out of the city, and I remember telling my dad that I saw a moving hose. That wasn't my last incident with snakes, and it seemed I was gifted with the ability to spot snakes when others couldn't. I once spotted a snake in the depths of a reclining chair in our cabin. It turned out to be plastic, but such was my ability. On another occasion I was riding my bicycle and rode up onto a mound. Not a couple of feet from me, within striking distance, was a rattlesnake coiled up ready to strike. Lucky for me we also had chickens and a white one was there distracting the snake. Perhaps the chicken thought the snake was a big worm. Later when we moved out of the backwoods we were still in a rural area. We lived in this house set against a hill. On two occasions in the downstairs where me and my sister had our rooms, we were startled by two different black snakes crawling up the stairs. It turns out there was a hole in the plumbing where the snakes were getting through. Needless to say, even after the hole was fixed, we slept upstairs from then on. Now that I'm an adult, I have two cars that I'm trying to fix up. One of them has been off the road for a while and has been parked at my folks' house by the woods and by a small stream. One year we found snake skins that some small water snakes had shed inside the car. Apparently they had found their way in through a small hole where the wiring passed through the firewall. I was afraid for the longest time to work on this car lest the snake should still be there. Recently the local pagan men's group that I'm a part of decided that we would devote this entire year to the study of the magician and the serpent. 
So while I have certain trepidations based on my very realistic phobia of snakes, I've decided to embrace the symbology and run with it. That was part of my reason for doing this episode and for going to the Red Dragon Feast. I'm also doing a workshop on serpent symbology for an upcoming retreat. Someone once told me that facing one's fears is a powerful and an alchemical process. Given that the serpent is a symbol of transmutation and regeneration, I'm interested to find what this process holds in store for me. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? When I talk about the serpent, I'm talking about the snake, the dragon, and their many mythical variations. The serpent has more or less about five major symbolic meanings across the many diverse cultures, traditions, and mythologies of the world. The negative include deceitfulness and vengefulness. The positive include guardianship, medicine, and regeneration. For the purposes of this episode, I'll be focusing on these last two aspects. Because serpents are often found living at the roots of trees, they have a close association with the earth but also with herbalism as the roots of many trees and plants are used in, in the healing arts. Because the serpent resides there, he is believed to have a strong knowledge of the healing herbs and roots. Some even believe he holds the secret to the elixir of life and to immortality. Because he lives in these places, he is also seen to have a strong underworld connections and a connection with death, the afterlife, and immortality. In fact, the serpent has the power of life and death in his fangs. The poison therein has the power to kill and to send one to the afterlife, but as with many poisons, in lower doses it is believed to have the power to heal. It can also provide expanded consciousness through divine intoxication. In many cultures the serpent is seen as a representation of the divine and the masculine aspect of the deity, at least in part due to its phallic nature. The feminine aspect of the deity is often seen in symbiosis with the serpent in the form of a tree, a rod or an egg. The serpent is also associated with renewal and regeneration because of its practice of shedding its old skin and growing a new one. Many are familiar with the caduceus, a rod with two intertwined serpents as a symbol of healing. In fact, it's commonly used as a medical symbol, but its single snake version called the Asclepius is the true symbol of healing. The caduceus was used by Hermes and has its associations with peace rather than healing. As the legend goes, Hermes came across two fighting snakes one day and placed his wand between them to stop the fighting. At that point, the snakes wrapped themselves around his rod, forming the caduceus. The Asclepius was the rod of the Greek god bearing the same name, who was the son of Apollo, and who was the Greek god of medicine. This god was reputed to have the power to bring the dead back to life. For this transgression against the natural laws, Zeus struck him down with a thunderbolt. The traditions of Asclepius continued through his priesthood in Greece. Those seeking his aid in healing stayed for periods of time in what was called an Asclepion, or Asclepion, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce this one, a sanctuary or shrine dedicated to the god. They slept overnight in these places where the god was said to reveal the remedies of the disease in, in their dreams. They reported their dreams to a priest the following day who prescribed a cure. Since snakes were sacred to Asclepius, they were often used in healing rituals. Non-venomous snakes were left to crawl on the floor in dormitories where the sick and injured slept. The Romans borrowed the worship of Asclepius from the Greeks and credit the god in serpent form with curing a plague in their city. The Asclepius is seen mimicked in Abrahamic traditions as the Nehushtan, the brazen serpent upheld by Moses, when God sent a plague of fiery serpents upon the Israelites for their ungratefulness while in the desert. He commanded that Moses make a brazen serpent 
and all that looked upon it were cured of the serpent's poison. Another Greek symbol is the bowl of Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health. Her bowl is a symbol of pharmacy. Many statues of this goddess show her holding a medicine bowl with a friendly snake coiling around her and about to eat from the bowl. Some view the bowl as the symbol of living in harmony with the earth and the responsibility of the patient to make correct choices, including whether or not to partake of the medicine. Among the Native American snake ceremonies involve learning to transmute the poisons within the body by being bitten multiple times. Surviving this reputedly gave the participant the power to transform all poisons in the body affecting healing. In Celtic and Druidic belief, the adder, called the nathair, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one either, uh, represented transformation, healing, and life energy. The Celts connected the serpent with the healing waters and the goddess Brigid. In Egypt, the sun serpent Nef personified healing power. The serpent is represented in Hinduism as the Kundalini, a coiled serpent that resides in the base of the chakra and the tailbone. Awakening this serpent through yoga and tantra is believed to strengthen one's life force, creative energy, connection to the divine, and healing power from within. beautiful snake. You know what? I'm a professional. You see a snake like this, don't muck with it. And one thing's for sure, don't try this at home. Far too dangerous. This snake could have enough venom to kill me and a hundred other blokes out here in the west. Before I proceed with my review of the Red Dragon Feast hosted by the Washington DC Radical Fairies, I thought it would be a good idea to give a little background on the event. I figured the best way to do that was with an interview with one of its planners. So here's a brief interview I did right after the event with one of its planners who goes by the name of Snowball. Washington, D.C. on uh, February 14th, and I've just attended the Feast of the Red Dragon um, put together by the D.C. Radical Fairies. I'm here with Snowball, <laughs> who's uh, going to ask me, or who's going to answer a couple questions for me. Uh, first of all, how are you involved with the, um, with the event? Uh, I have been a member of the D.C. Radical Fairies since 1998, um, and the Fairies have been hosting an annual uh, Red Dragon Feast since, I think, 99 or 2000. Okay, uh, what exactly is the Feast of the Red Dragon? The Feast of the Red Dragon is a tradition uh, nationwide uh, involving radical fairies and also members of um, such pagan groups as the Reclaiming Tradition of Wicca. Uh, it is a feast designed to raise uh, magical energy and money for healing and cures for bloodborne diseases such as HIV, uh, metastatic cancers, sickle cell anemia, and other bloodborne diseases. Um, and uh, at all Red Dragon feasts, what happens is people gather and there's a ritual, and everyone wears red, eats red foods from red plates with red forks, red tables, red everything, to remind us of the life-giving blood. And here we also dance with uh, the red dragon, who appears to us uh, in human form with an enormous dragon head. Okay, well that answers my second question. What kind of things happen at the feast? Um... There's, there's, there's actually a ritual, a feast, and a very silly but hopefully profitable auction every year. Okay, and um, 
And I guess DC Radical Ferries, you said, has held this event every year since 99? I think since 99. We initially did it in partnership with a group of reclaiming witches in DC. And us in for for a number of years now have been doing it uh, have been uh, doing it ourselves and inviting people from the community and every year the community really uh, turns out. Okay, and every year uh, in DC right around Valentine's Day. Yes, it, uh, Red Dragon feasts happen all over the country, but one of the DC innovations was to pair it with Valentine's Day. How many people usually attend? Uh, it varies enormously year to year. Um, we've had as many as. Uh, just a few short of 100. We've had as many as I think 85 or 90. Um, most years we have about 50, but it really does depend on any number of things, including uh, the weather and what else is happening in the community uh, that at the, on that day that year. Okay, uh, do the proceeds go to the same charity or different charities every D year? Different charities. Some of the proceeds are used to fund the DC Radical Ferries uh, to basically make the running of the event itself uh, possible. Um, and then we give it to other uh, community groups. Uh, this year, the group that we're contributing to is Food and Friends, which is a DC uh, community-based group that provides meals to homebound people with life-challenging diseases like HIV and cancer. We always choose a group that is small, community-based, that really are, are comparatively small donations compared to what, say, a big corporation can give or something like that. Could make a big difference in their budget. But we've given to such groups in the past as the Howard University um, Sickle Cell Clinic, uh, uh, Food and Friends, Grandma's House, was a, which is a pediatric AIDS home. Um, and we also, uh, last year, used the funds to run our own uh, outreach educational project designed to promote safer sex. Okay, um, and could you tell me a little bit more about the DC Radical Fairies? The DC Radical Fairies are part of the the the, the loose but profound uh, fairy movement worldwide. Um, we have things in common with all fairy movements, uh, but with all radical fairy movements. But I think we also have a particularly DC inflection. We tend to be, I think, by the standards of many of America's. Uh, many of America's fairies were a little uh, organized for some people's taste. Um, we are a group of people of all genders and all sexualities who gather to pursue queer sexuality uh, and or, uh, rather queer spirituality in the context of all the world's religious traditions. Okay, and what other kinds of events does the DC Rad Fay hold every year? We have we are very active in uh, uh, DC's Pride in June. We participate in the parade. We have a booth for that. We also do a number of rituals throughout the year, including at Beltane and at Samhain. We have a weekly potluck that has happened every Monday night without fail for over 10 years now, for 11 years. And there really isn't anyone else in DC's uh, queer community at all that can say they've had a weekly event without fail for uh, more than a decade. That's unprecedented, really, in this community. Okay, that's all the questions I have. Thank you very much. You're very uh, welcome. Thank you. When I drove up to the Feast of the Red Dragon, I really wasn't sure what to expect, but what I found were some really friendly people doing their part to promote a worthy cause. I was surprised to find some people I recognized, as well as making some new friends.
The event started with a ritual to empower the Red Dragon to help fight against bloodborne illnesses, notably HIV but also cancer, leukemia, and the like. The Red Dragon is a personification of the healing power directed against these diseases, and given the healing symbology of the serpent I mentioned earlier, the Red Dragon is a very appropriate symbol to aid in this process. The ritual started with drumming and grounding, and then sacrificing the blood oranges, an actual variety of oranges with crimson, blood-colored flesh. I looked them up just to be sure I wasn't missing anything. After this, a man costumed as the Red Dragon came out and participants joined hands and participated in a spiral snake dance, all the while singing the song of the Red Dragon to raise energy to be used toward healing. As with any feast, there was food and drink. It was all naturally red-colored. I'm not sure about other years, but this year it was chilly. The vegetarian option was an Indian chickpea dish. There were also chips and salsa and a brightly colored salad. Drinks included red wine, cranberry juice, and red punch. After the meal, people were encouraged to make toasts either to the cause or to people who have dealt with or died from a blood-borne illness. I even got up myself and toasted my father, who just passed away from prostate cancer. Then there was an auction and raffle. There were some really beautiful items, many handcrafted by individuals. They included two huge origami dragons, dragon drawing, drumming lessons, and several other neat items. If you're referring to the incident with the dragon, I was barely involved. Thanks for listening to Discovering the Male Mysteries with Mel Mystery Podcast. You can find out more information about the show, its hosts, and find a link to our Yahoo group by going to http colon backslash backslash m-e-l-m-y-s-t-e-r-y dot m-a-t-r-i-x w-e-r-x dot com. That's http colon backslash backslash mystery dot matrixworks dot com. If you would like to submit original poetry or music, suggest a topic, or guest host a future segment, you can find information on how to do so, including a way to email me on the Mail Mysteries website. Good night, everybody.